Will you join me in prayer this morning, please? Father God, we're gathered this morning with special prayers and concerns for our church family. Be with our leaders as they strive to find workable solutions for the concerns we face. We pray that you give them wisdom to seek answers from you. We know that we do not need to be afraid. The ministry at Muncie need not change. We know that your grace is sufficient for every need and nothing can separate us from your love. We have other petitions to bring to you this morning, Lord. We ask for your presence with the breeding family as they say goodbye to their loved one. We ask that you hold close Nancy Collins and her daughters in this time of illness and open our hearts, Lord. Help us in all things to be the disciples you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. with you. <coughs> if you've been gone for the last couple of weeks, you may not know that I was gone for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, two weeks ago I was in Eugene, Oregon, had a board meeting for a group that I'm part of called the Ecclesia Project. Ecclesia or Ecclesia, depending on how you pronounce it, is the Greek word for church, and it's a ecumenical group that works for church renewal. And uh, we have a habit of having a winter board meeting every year in February, and pretty much no matter where we go, we take horrible weather with us. So uh, Eugene, Eugene had the worst weather it had all season. And uh, some of our board members couldn't get there because they were flying through Seattle, which had a historic snowstorm. And uh, we had one board member who flew from Dayton to Seattle, uh, couldn't get from Seattle to Eugene that day. And so they said, well, spend the night and maybe we can get you there tomorrow. But they couldn't. And so she just turned around and flew back to Dayton. So you can imagine flying across the country twice just for the weekend, just for fun. Um, and a couple other board members flew to Atlanta and found out if they got to Seattle, they would never get to Eugene, so they just went back home too. But I made it to Eugene. I took the southern route, and uh, we had a good board meeting. And then last Sunday, um, many of you know that I, uh, I teach a class every spring called Spirituality in Everyday Life, and one of the things that uh, I do is take the students uh, to the Benedictine Monastery in southern Indiana for a weekend. Spend three days with the monks and uh, pray with them five times a day, um, eat with them, talk with them, 
enter into the rhythm of their life and it's always a, a powerful weekend. Not to mention you get 14 hours in the van with your students, which is kind of fun too, because you find out all things, all kinds of things about them and occasionally they find a thing out about you that they wouldn't otherwise find out uh, in the classroom. So, so I've had two good weeks away, but I've missed you. And um, we're gonna be, as I mentioned three weeks ago, we're gonna be devoting the next six weeks to a study of Ephesians, uh, this little letter uh, traditionally attributed to Paul in the New Testament. And we get, did a little introduction three weeks ago. I don't expect you to remember too much about that, but it's okay, you don't have to know too much about it. Um, maybe the only thing worth saying is, um, it looks like this is unusual uh, letter uh, of Paul. Even though scholars uh, disagree uh, for good reason about whether Paul wrote this or whether one of his associates wrote it, we're going to call it Paul because I don't think there are convincing reasons to know for sure it wasn't Paul. So we're just going to call the author Paul. I think that makes the most sense. Um, but it is an unusual letter in that it seems to have served as a sort of circular letter uh, that went to a number of churches, not just the church at Ephesus. In fact, some of the oldest manuscripts we have of this letter don't even have the word Ephesus in the opening lines. And so uh, even though it says that, um, it clearly went other places. And we have reason to think that because we know Paul spent years at Ephesus. And one of the points in the letter, it says, I've heard about your faith. As if somebody else had to tell him, well, you wouldn't say that if you'd been there a couple of years, right? So. But the authorship nearly isn't nearly as important as, as the substance of this letter. And today we're going to do our best to try to enter in to this first chapter. And this first chapter, I've been, been trying to think for weeks um, how to help us enter into this first chapter. Because this first chapter uh, may be one of the most glorious chapters in the entire New Testament. Uh, and Paul is trying to say, to bring to speech something that he's pretty clear words can't possibly do justice to. And so the reason I have this photograph up here um, is because I'm just trying to capture the, the spirit of the sort of wonder and awe that Paul is feeling as he's trying to lay out in this first chapter a vision of what God is about, the kind of, the kind of big picture. Now this photograph behind me I took uh, back in June of 2017. I was up on Unaka Mountain. And so that's actually a picture of me um, <laughs> up on Unaka Mountain. Um, it was a glorious night up there. Um, yeah, Unaka Mountain's a special place to me. I'll tell you those stories another time. Uh, but it was a beautiful night up there, and I was trying to capture just a little bit of the awe and wonder uh, of what it meant to be up there on this gorgeous night um, where the Milky Way was just stunning. Now the truth of the matter is, um, 
every June on Unaka Mountain, the Milky Way and those stars are up there. Every single night, right? Um, now you don't always see it. Just like, I don't know about you this morning, but I woke up and thought, what is that giant yellow disc in the sky? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, if I just think hard enough, I'm sure I can figure it out. Um, but it's always been up there, right? I mean, it's one of the things you're always reminded of when you fly and you get above the clouds. It's like, it's always up there. Um, and it's been up there for the last, I don't know, couple months when we haven't seen it. Um, but the same thing here. I mean, what Paul's trying to capture is, the, is, the, is this profound, wonder-inducing truth that's easy to miss. It's easy to forget because it's hard to get the whole picture of what God's about in view. Um, at least I do. In my daily life, it's easy to get what I think... I call little pictured to death, right? You forget about what the big picture, what God is doing. And, you know, when I think about all the anxiety there is in American culture right now, about a hundred different things. I think about all the anxiety and fear uh, in the United Methodist Church uh, this weekend. Um, and I appreciate, it's one of the reasons I appreciate Janet's prayer so much that we don't have to be afraid. But one of the things that makes it possible not to be afraid is to be reminded of what is true. Of what is true. And Paul in this first chapter, I mean, he's like me. Uh, I think the first chapter as Paul's, I mean, it's, it's poetry, it's hymn-like, it's prayer-like. He's not starting off with a theological argument, but he's telling you some of the deep truths of the Christian faith. And he just, he can't get it all out. It's just, he's overwhelmed. And so uh, I think of the first chapter of Ephesians as, as Paul's sort of version of this, right? He's just got his hands up in the air like I do in that picture. And he's just saying, look at this. Look at this. Take this in. You can't bring. You can't possibly bring this to speech, but I'm going to try. Okay, I'm going to try. So let me just tell you a couple things, just to tell you that you can't tell by your English version. Um, so he's got this opening, that's all one sentence, verses one and two, where he says, "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God." To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God the Father, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. A pretty typical Pauline greeting. That's all one sentence. Now here's what you need to know. The rest of the chapter is sort of broken into two parts. Verses 3 down to verse 14, and then 15 to 23. Okay. Now, here's what you can't tell in your English version. If you're reading this in Greek, one of the things that would strike you immediately is verses 3 through 14 are one sentence. And verses 15 to 23 are one sentence. 
So chapter one of this book is three sentences. One sentence greeting, one sentence about the truth of what God has done in Jesus, and one sentence about his blessing on the church in light of that. Okay? So, it's just, Paul is just trying to get out all this stuff, but he just keeps going and going and going, and he, it's, it's just all one sentence. <laughs> it's just, a, so this is the kind of, this is what we're asking, what we're hoping God will help us enter into this morning, is this incredible vision that Paul wants us to see that is the truth it has always been the truth, but it's easy to let the daily life sort of cloud your eyes, right? And not see the truth of what is so. So let's, let's see what Paul has to say here because um, I haven't, I asked Doug to put this picture up. I sent it to him. What I'd really like to do, whether I can literally, I'd love to have this picture up all six weeks because everything that Paul says for the rest of the six weeks is assuming that this is so, right? This is the big thing to get. In fact, the first three chapters, Paul is just trying to say, I mean, here's one way of dividing up the book. It's six chapters. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is just saying, here is what is the case. There's almost nothing in the first three chapters where Paul says, now do this and don't do that. Um, Go do this and be that. He's just saying, this is the reality of what God has done. The last three chapters will be, now because that's so, here are some things that follow. But he's going to take three chapters, and this is the first one, and it's the most glorious. Um, but we can't even, again, the, as you know in these letters, the chapters are arbitrary. It's just, it's just a letter. Uh, most of you, when you write letters, don't put chapters and verses, right? It's completely arbitrary. It just makes it easy for us to find our way around. But it's just a letter. Right? But the first part of this letter is basically two long, incredibly complex, glorious sentences where Paul is trying to help us and help the people who would read this letter in his day be captivated by, caught up in these, this glorious truth of what God has done in and through Jesus. And so let's see if we can get our heads around just a little bit um, this opening that is, that is a kind of blessing. The first part is really a blessing of God. You know, the Jewish people um, bless God. It seems like an odd thing for us sometimes. We think, well, God blesses us. Um, but a, a traditional Jewish blessing is, you know, blessed be the God, the Lord, the King of the universe, right? And so Paul starts off in verse 3. What's he say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, here's what we're going to do. That's his opening, like he takes a breath there. Just to give you the sweep of this, I'm, I'm going to read these, this whole first sentence 
That's more than one sentence in your text. And just try to imagine Paul taking a deep breath and going, oh, okay, here we go. I'm not going to read it in one breath. But just try to take in what he's saying. And it's, it's about God's action. Try to pay attention to what God has done. Because here's one of the shocking things about these first verses. There's nothing in these verses that you have done. This is about God. It's about what God has done. Which is a very United Methodist thing to say. Right? Uh, that God's grace is always out in front of you. We're responding. But he wants to offer this blessing to God for what God has done. Well, what has God done? Well, God has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the, his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, this is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. That's one sentence. Right? If you don't think Paul's overwhelmed in trying to bring to speech what God has done and to offer a blessing, right? He's encouraging his hearers to to bless this God who has done all of this. You haven't done anything. This is what God has done for you, for us. And trying to help them, again, get caught up in this. Because one of our, our first response to what God has done is to bless God's glorious name for what God has done, right? To give thanksgiving and praise and honor and worship to the one who has done all of this. So let's go back and just highlight a little bit because it just, again, he just piles up and piles up all this that God has done in Jesus. Let's remind ourselves. Let's go a little slower through that one sentence and take a couple breaths here and there. So he calls God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're gonna, we're going to notice there's a Trinitarian pattern here. He's going to talk about the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to talk about the Spirit uh, toward the end. 
And so there's this glorious who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. And here, um, it's easy to think, to sort of pit spiritual and earthly material as against each other. That's not the way Paul uses the language of spiritual. Um, Paul, mean, Paul doesn't mean spiritual as opposed to material or like in this world. He means blessings that are animated that are delivered through the power of the spirit, right? They're spirit blessings, if you will. They're, they're blessings that are made possible by the animating power of God's spirit. And that's across all of human life. It's not some sort of special little corner of your life called your spiritual blessings. Um, he's talking about the animating force of the, of the, of the spirit of Jesus. And so God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Here, Paul's trying to say, you know, this, this God has chosen us just like God chose Israel. And God didn't choose Israel. Well, God's really clear in the Old Testament. God doesn't choose Israel because they were special on their own. God didn't look around and say, let me see if I can find a special people and I'll choose them. No, they were special because they were chosen, not chosen because they were special. They weren't even a people until God chose them. And God makes that very clear. God says, I didn't choose you because you were something. I chose you because you were nothing. You weren't even a people until I called you. And so they're chosen for a purpose, right? The, the people of Israel were called and chosen to be a light to the nations. They were the vehicle through whom which all the people of the world will be blessed. I mean, God had a plan for blessing all people from the beginning. And it was going to be through the people of God. Originally, that was Jews. And what Paul's going to say is, but all from the very beginning, God was going to bless everyone, everyone, through these chosen people. And what we're going to find in the rest of the book is the, the mystery of this is that the Gentiles were chosen too in Christ. And so, but you were chosen, right? You were, you were chosen before the foundation of the world, Paul says. And here Paul is waxing poetic. I mean, he's, he's trying to get us to see in poetic language that this, what God's about, extends from before anything we can think of as the beginning and extends all the way to beyond what, what we might call the end. God is before that, all that and after all that. And I mean, this wasn't sort of like God decided along the way, oh, I think I'll choose someone. This is what he's trying to say. And he's using this poetic language before the foundation of the world. This was not an accident. Um, it's a little bit 
mean, one of the analogies I was thinking of this week, one of my favorite poets is a Chinese poet uh, called Li Young Li. He has a really beautiful poem that he writes uh, to his beloved. Uh, and the title of the poem is, I loved you before you were born. And the opening line goes, I loved you before you were born. It makes no sense, I know. Right? And that's sort of what Paul is saying here. God chose you before you were born. God chose you from the foundation of the world. That makes no sense, I know. But that's, that's the sweep of what God's about. This miss, what he's going to call the mystery of what God is doing in Christ that has been revealed to us, we didn't figure it out, is, is not uh, God's sort of, you know, 15th plan to get things to work out on this earth and creation that God has made. God chose us in the Son, in Christ, from the foundations of the world. Now again, you can't get your head around that completely. All you can do is sort of go like, that's crazy. Right? That's okay. That's okay. That's what Paul's happy for that. Um, but that's, that's what he's saying. Before the foundations of the world, you were chosen. Okay. Uh, that's what Jesus says to the disciples. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Right? Um, so if, if you're going to... You know, one thing we're going to see before we get to the end of this chapter is you're going to have to get rid of all your illusions of being the one who's in control, uh, pulling the levers that are controlling your life and making everything happen in the world. And that's good news. Right? That's good news. Um, you are not, I are not in control. And God is in control, but also not in the ways that we sometimes think. So let's keep going. We're still mid-sentence, just at the beginning. All right? So he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. All right? To be holy, to be set apart and blameless in Christ. All right? He's done this. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So you were, you were destined for adoption. Again, not by accident. Uh, this is the Father, right, who in God's own son destined you for adoption. Right. Um, and he just wants us to know, and he wants his hearers to know, uh, you aren't an accidental, and he wants his Gentile hearers to know, you weren't an accidental part of the family. It wasn't like, you know, someone, you know, dropped the Gentiles off, you know, at God's doorstep as, you know, sort of abandoned children and sort of God just said, okay, well, we'll take them in, take care of them. No, from the beginning, from the beginning, God had destined all of us, including the Gentiles, and I'm thinking that's most of us here. Uh, I don't know your heritage, but I'm thinking most of us here, that would be us. Uh, you're not an afterthought. You're not an afterthought. Uh, Paul is saying, from the beginning, with all, now we're still seven, we're not even halfway through this sentence, 
in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us. Okay, there's one of those blessings. Right? So we've been adopted, we've been forgiven. With all wisdom and insight, He has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. Let's take the first part of that. With all wisdom and insight, He has made known to us the mystery of His will. And the word mystery here, Paul uses fairly technically, not just to mean something that's beyond human comprehension, although it means that, but Paul uses it to talk about the mystery, just means this, this mystery, the mystery, like what God is doing in Christ, that there's no way if you'd been in Paul's day, if you'd been alive at the disciples, that you could just read off what God was doing in Jesus. It had to be revealed. Right. I'm sorry, but an itinerant Jewish preacher being crucified, Roman cross, what that means, you just can't read it off. Uh, that has to be revealed to you that God is doing something that is not there for eyes to see. It's not, you have to be given eyes to see that. And Paul says, we have been given eyes to see that. This mystery has been revealed to us. And that again is, what can you say about that other than just be caught up in it? Um, yeah. Halfway through the first sentence. Let's, but then the sort of hinge in this part is this thing where he says, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And here, Paul gets close to something that also gets echoed in the opening chapters of Colossians with not only is, is the Son, is Christ, somehow active in the creation of the world, He's also the goal and endpoint of everything. That the, the ultimate end of this, that was planned from the foundation of the world, is that Jesus Christ would gather up all things in Him. He would pull together all things in Him, which is going to be a really important thing to keep in mind because later in the book of Ephesians, Paul's going to talk about the divisions that are easy in any congregation, anyone who's hearing this letter, to focus on. But he's saying God is gathering up all things, and he's not even just talking about people here. This sort of echoes what he says in Romans, that all, that all creation is going to be gathered up in this one. So Jesus really is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end point. Again, it's pretty hard to get your head around that. Right? I mean, all you can do is kind of like this. Right? That's about all you can do. 
is just say, God is going to gather up the fullness of time at the right moment. Everything is going to be gathered up in this one called Jesus Christ. In heaven and on earth. What else are these blessings that he wants to name that cause us to bless God? In verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. We're adopted. That's pretty cool. Uh, apparently we're adopted sort of on equal terms with others. Right? It's not like you're the adopted one, but you're not really family. And so, sorry, no inheritance for you. That's just for blood relatives. No. Um, we have received an inheritance, obtained an inheritance. Notice you don't secure an inheritance yourself, right? Again, we're talking about what God has done. God has given. Having been destined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will. So that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, and here I'm thinking Paul, it's hard to know, this is ambiguous. Uh, he might be talking about the first Christians who were largely Jewish, right? So that we, he says, who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. But in him you also, like you Gentiles also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had put your trust in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. There's another blessing, right? Not just the inheritance, but part of this is inheritance is that when you put your trust in this one, you were sealed. God put God's seal, the Holy Spirit, upon you, which he goes on to say is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. And so the Holy Spirit is God's pledge or down payment. Uh, lots of different ways you can translate that. That somehow... God has given us, has marked us for the, for the end, right? For our ultimate end to be drawn up in Christ. But we know that that's true because we can even experience some of that new life now because we, through the gift, this inheritance, through the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us, we can by the power of the Spirit, live that new life now. Live new life here today as a pledge of what comes later in its fullness. So Paul, that's the first sentence. Okay? That's the first sentence. Um, and, yeah, I've taught writing for years and if a student wrote that sentence, you know, I would have corrected it and said, no one can possibly read that sentence, break it up into four or five sentences if you hope to communicate anything to your audience. Paul saying, the heck with grammar, right? This is bigger than grammar. Um, th this, this, is, this is my attempt to say, 
look at this, would you? Please bless this God who has done this. Okay, please. And then the second sentence, which we'll have to go through more quickly. Now he takes all of that and he directs it to them. And he wants them, and it's a kind of prayer, he's going to direct, the first part is blessing and thanksgiving of God. And then at verse 15 he's going to turn all that and take those very same themes and encourage them by, through a prayer of thanksgiving for them, for what God is doing in them, given all of that. So you're going to hear echoes of almost everything that he just said in verses 3 uh, to 14. You're going to hear it again in verses 15, but apply to his hearers now. So he started off the scope as broad as possible from before the beginning to the end of all. And now he's trying to say, and what? Now let's, I give thanks because of you. Why? I have heard of your faith, he says in verse 15. I've heard of your trust in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. And here's what he's praying. He's praying, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. There's this notion of revelation, right? Um, so I've heard about your trust. And so I'm praying that God will continue to deepen that trust and that God would give you the spirit of revelation that God has given to the people of God to, to be let in on this secret. And it's an open secret. And this is one thing that's challenging about what Paul's saying here. There were lots of little, they were called, called mystery religions in, in Paul's day, where all these little religions, they had, they had secrets and you had to be you know, on the inside. You couldn't get to know these secrets. Uh, because unless you were initiated into this little mystery religion, uh, you couldn't know what the truth was about that religion. Paul says this is an open secret. Okay? This is potentially available to all, Jew, Gentile, everyone. You don't have to be special to be on the inside of this. And so he's praying that God would grant them, would grant them a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that... With the eyes, a beautiful image here. With the eyes of your heart lit up. Okay? With the eyes of your heart lit up, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? There's that word again, among the saints. And here he's going to just pile up all these words. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who trust according to the energizing work of God's great power. God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far 
above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he's put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here he's saying, look, this God, we know this God, his power is immeasurable. And for Paul, the, the clearest sign of that, of God's power, is God raising Jesus from the dead. God Jesus, God raised Jesus from the dead. And in doing so, shows that he has dominion over every power, every authority, every, and here he just lists all the words he can think of. It's like he pulled out his thesaurus and said, look up power. What, word, what words do people think of? So he just lists them, right? Every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name, because even names in that, right, to name something was to have power. He just says, over all of that, this immeasurable power. You can't measure this power, but I'm going to try to give you an idea of how powerful this God is. But this is, this is a God to be reminded. Behind all this is what they know. This power was revealed in and through a crucified Jesus. Which is he's going to remind them is and that's the foolishness, the, the weakness. This is God's power acting not in the way that you normally think, but God raising from the dead and vindicating and putting his blessing on the one who came as a servant even unto death. Right? And so, this is what Paul's saying. God has done this amazing thing. Try to get swept up into it. And it has implications because God, I want to pray that God would reveal this to you and this would have make a difference in the way that you live together. He's, he's going to get to that eventually. But he mainly wants the, them to get caught up in this big picture of who this God is and what God has done. And that's what I want us to do today is just be caught up you know, just get caught up. Uh, nothing follows from this today. You don't have to go out here and do anything. Because actually, in this whole first chapter, you haven't done a thing. It's about what God has done. And the truth of the matter is, our entire lives ought to be an overflow, ought to be lived out of what God has done. And so, I mean... That night, that's all I could do, right? I could just, all I could do was throw my hands up and say, take a picture if you want, but I can't, I can't bring this to speech. Okay, I can't bring this to speech. Paul has tried. Um, he's pulled out every stop that he can think of, but he's, he knows he can't capture it. And so, this week, I don't know what's going to happen this week. I don't know what's going to happen in St. Louis. I don't know what's going to happen in Washington. 
I don't know what's going to happen in North Korea. I don't know what's going to happen in Venezuela. I don't know what's going to happen in Millennium College. I'm hoping the college is still there. Away. Yeah, they did send six tow trucks yesterday to, to tow trucks out of a parking lot so that they wouldn't float away. So, um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen this week. But Paul says, you know what? Whatever happens this week, start here. Start here. It doesn't mean there won't be problems. It doesn't mean there won't be arguments. It doesn't mean everything today will work out the way you and I want it to. It doesn't mean any of that. Um, this is not Paul being Pollyanna. He's not saying just, you know, close your eyes and everything will be fine. But he is saying that God has set in motion a plan that cannot be stopped by human will. Not in the long run. This is, the where, this is where creation is going. I don't know how long it will take. Probably a lot longer than our lives, probably. Um, but God's in it for the long haul, and so should we. And so whatever obstacles that you and I might think are along the way, Paul certainly had them in his day. Um, try to keep your eye on the big picture. Um, and that's where our hope is. That's where Paul says our hope is. Our hope is in what God is about. So I want to close with, um, I think every week I'm going to close with a kind of benediction that Paul uses actually at the end of these first three chapters. It's a kind of weird place to have a benediction, but the first three chapters are all about what God has done. So um, at the close of my prayer, I want to finish with Paul's words at the end of chapter three. So let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you aware that we can be overwhelmed completely by all that happens around us, all that we feel within us. And we do lift up uh, the United Methodist Church around the world and our leaders in St. Louis and pray your wisdom be revealed to them. But we pray that we might be caught up this day uh, not in what's going on in St. Louis, uh, not what's happening in Washington, anywhere else, not even what's happening in our own little lives and households, as important as those are to us and to you, but that we might just for this day be caught up in who you are and what you have done and what you have promised to bring to completion. And may our hope be firmly grounded in you and in that. And now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Did you have a Jesus dress on?